our journey through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation on Sunday nights. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now and they have lots of Bibles and uh, just signal them. They'll get one into your hands and uh, a lot easier to follow along with what we're talking about on Sunday nights as we endeavor to cover a larger section of scripture. And you can follow along not only with your ears, but also with your eyes. As we come to the end last week of First Kings chapter six, the uh, is the record of Solomon's completion of the single greatest thing he ever did in his reign, and that was the construction of the temple. Because it was the single greatest thing that he did, a considerable portion of the Old Testament record of his life is given over uh, to that great event, chapters uh, 5 through 8. And so Solomon completed the building of the temple and all of its beauty and wealth and all that was involved in it, all of it to speak of the glory of God. And it took seven years for it to be completed. And then we begin chapter 7. And Solomon took 13 years to build his own house or his palace. David really never had a palace quite like Solomon wanted. And so he finished all of his house. Now, before we jump on him for taking twice as long to build his house as he took to build the house of the Lord, um, the Bible says love hopes all things. And so, you know, maybe he did a little more than he should have. I'm sure your house took less than 13 years to build. But the fact of the matter is there certainly wouldn't have been the kind of urgency to finish his house that would have been associated with a temple. And so it took him 13 years to build his own house. So in the building of both the temple and his house, we're talking about 20 years. Yet he reigned for 40 years. So this starts to put us... Um, Ultimately, when all of that was finished at the midpoint of his uh, his reign. Now, he's going to dedicate the temple long before he gets done building his own uh, palace here. So here's some of the building projects that he was involved in the building of his own palace. He also built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits. Remember, a cubit is 18 inches. And uh, so we're talking about 150 feet here in length. Its width was 50 cubits or 75 feet. Its height, 30 cubits with four rows of cedar pillars and cedar beams uh, on the pillars. And it was paneled with cedar above the beams that were on 45 pillars, 15 to a row. And so this building that he built, the house of the forest of Lebanon, was named that. Uh, simply because it, it was so large and required so many uh, cedar pillars to support it that when you walked into the room, you thought you had walked into a cedar uh, forest. And so that's what it was, uh, why it was named what it was named. It's obviously an absolutely huge room, and we don't know exactly what it was used for, but obviously used for large assemblies of some kind. And uh, and whenever he would want to entertain some, you know, very, very large uh, audience, there were windows with beveled frames uh, on in three rows as a part of that building. Remember, they didn't have glass in those days. And so these were just openings in the in the walls that allowed ventilation and light into the rooms. Uh, they could put lattice up or shutters to give, you know, to close things off. But uh, no glass and the window was opposite window in three tiers. And so in the building of this particular room, whoever the architect was, he was into symmetry. So he liked everything being symmetrical. And uh, we love symmetrical people uh, here. And we like asymmetrical uh, as well. But well, anyway, so. I can't win if I say one other comment. It'll be silly. So all the doorways and the doorposts had rectangular frames and window was opposite window and three tiers. All right. So he made then the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits or 75 feet and its width 30 cubits. And in front of them was a portico with pillars and a canopy that was in front of them. So this appears to have been a kind of a covered hallway open on both sides. So kind of a covered uh, colonnade. 
and a roof over your head, no sides on it, probably connecting the house of the forest of Lebanon with the hall of judgment. In verse 7, he made a hall for the throne, the hall of judgment, uh, where he might judge, Solomon might, and it was paneled with cedar from floor to ceiling. And so a very beautiful building, the wood that was in there. And uh, this was evidently kind of their supreme court, so that when cases came that uh, only the king could really judge properly, uh, he would sit kind of in, in judgment. The cases would be brought forth, forth to him, and that's why it was called the Hall of Judgment. And the house where he dwelt had another court inside the hall, and so uh, of like workmanship, and Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken as wife. And so he built her her own uh, palace. And all of these were of costly stones cut to size, trimmed with saws inside and out from the foundation to the eaves and also on the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, large stones. Don't think diamonds or rubies or whatever. I was thinking, I walked by a jeweler's uh, shop where they had the windows, and I always walk by jewelry shops. God bless you if you own one. But it was talking about some kind of a deal looking at jewelry, and then there was the woman's brain was just gigantic like this, and then the man's brain was like this. So the idea was he didn't know what he was talking about. And these costly stones that are in a jewelry place. This is talking just about beautiful cut, the soft limestone that was around Jerusalem. So you've got these buildings that are just beautiful texture. You've got that, that uh, golden stone so beautiful with the sun shining on it. Then you've got this beautiful cedar. And so these are the costly stones that are talking about. We're spoken about and above were costly stones verse 11 hewn to size and cedar wood the great court was enclosed with three rows of hewn stone and a row of cedar beams and so that courtyard that we looked at last week uh, that had kind of a uh, a, uh, a a stone wall that was built around it not very high up and uh, so that kind of defined the boundaries of the courtyard. And so were the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the temple. Now, King Solomon sent and brought uh, Huram from Tyre. And he was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali. So his mother was Jewish of the Jewish tribe of, of Naphtali. And his father was a man of Tyre. He was a Gentile and uh, he was a bronze worker. And this uh, Huram, he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze work. And so he came to King Solomon and did all of his work. And so here is a man. Solomon is going to have, want to have an awful lot of things built of bronze. He uh, finds out about this uh, young man who is very, very skilled in, in casting bronze perfectly uh, suited to the task. He has a religious sensitivity to the God of the Jews from his mother, and he's learned this trade of, uh, of, of being a, a sculptor, really, and casting bronze uh, from his father. He's told, we're told here in verse 14, filled with wisdom, understanding, and skill in all kinds of bronze. And so we would call this kind of a man today, we call him a master craftsman. He was the kind of guy that uh, loved doing this kind of work, and he loved the challenge, and uh, especially skilled at casting very, very large, intricate uh, objects. One of the things that I love about this, and then in uh, the building of the tabernacle, the tent under Moses, is that God skilled, he specifically anointed and skilled uh, people who had the ability to do things uh, physical, to make physical things. And so sometimes we can think in the body of Christ, you know, I, I hate public speaking. I don't, you know, I'm not really like to get up in front of a crowd or anything. And I, so I wonder if God can use me. I'm only good with my hands. Listen, you don't want me working on your car. You want one of these people working on your car. You don't want a harpist working on your car 
or casting bronze, unless it's an extraordinary harpist who can do both those things and still manage to have fingers that can do that kind of work. So the, the point of it is, is that all of these different kinds of gifts and people were needed in order to bring all of this beauty that God intended uh, to come here to the, to the temple. And so he was sent for uh, by Solomon. And then this is some of the things that he cast. Uh, related to the the temple. And he cast two pillars of bronze, each one 18 cubits high. So the two pillars are um, uh, 27 feet high and a line of 12 cubits or uh, 18 feet measured the circumference of each. So these are very tall, very stout, very, very substantial. And he made two capitals that would be placed on the top of the two pillars of cast bronze to set, oh, here we are, on the tops of the pillars. And the height of the one capital was five cubits, or seven and a half feet. That was placed on top of the 27 feet. And the height of the other capital was also five cubits. And he made a lattice network with wreaths of chain work for the capitals, which were on top of the pillars. And you've seen these pillars sometimes in the ancient world where they've got these pillars that are straight up, and then they've got this beautiful ornamentation up on the top, and that's what is being uh, spoken about here. And so he made the pillars and two rows of pomegranates above the network all around to cover the capitals that were on top, and he also did for the other capitals. So beautiful, just beautiful work. To, all this is being cast uh, as a part of, of uh, putting these together. The capitals that were on top of the pillars in the hall were in the shape of lilies, uh, four cubits, and uh, the capitals of the two pillars also had pomegranates above by the convex surface that was uh, next to the network, and there were 200 such pomegranates in rows on each of the capitals all around. Wow! You say, that's kind of boring to me. You didn't cast it. If you cast it, you'd want all that detail in there. You don't just get... This is not... Uh, uh, bronze casting 101 that's going on here. This is amazing what this guy was uh, able to do. Must have been beautiful. And then he set up the pillars by the vestibule of the, the temple and he set up the pillar on the right and called its name uh, Jason and on the other uh, pillar he, and set up the other pillar on the left and called its name Boaz And the word uh, uh, Jason, it means he shall establish, speaking of God. And Boaz says, speaks of in him is strength. And so every time they came to the temple before they would even enter in, they'd see these pillars. All of the kids would learn what the names of them were, what they meant. And even before they got near the temple, they'd look at those pillars and they would realize that their God is strength. Their God is stability. This is that this great thing that they're seeing in front of them is just a small representation uh, of the strength and stability of their God. And so they were a, a piece of art that was designed to commute, uh, communicate a message wonderfully, powerfully, or very artistically as well. But God is not opposed to art in any way. Look at what he's produced all around us that we enjoy. Just the sunrise and sunset that half the people sleep through one of them and the other, uh, you know, got the boob tube on and missed the other one. So, uh, he's, he likes beauty. There's nothing wrong with it. And the tops of the pillars were in the shape of lilies, and so the work of the pillars was finished. And then he made a sea of cast uh, bronze, ten cubits from one brim to the other, 15 feet across, in the, this great cast uh, sea, or kind of tub, so to speak, in a circular form. And it was completely round, and the height was five uh, cubits, seven and a half feet off the ground, and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. Below its rim were ornamental buds encircling it all around, uh, ten of these ornamental buds uh, to a cubit every 18 inches all the way around the sea. The ornamental buds were cast in two rows when they were cast. Uh, this particular uh, item, just this item alone, is estimated to have weighed 30 tons. 
Ultimately, when Nebuchadnezzar, Jerusalem falls because of their sin uh, several hundred years later, and when Nebuchadnezzar comes in to strip the wealth of the temple and, uh, and the things associated with the temple, they simply, even Nebuchadnezzar, could not transport this stuff. Uh, they, they broke it down into pieces and then transported uh, the metal back to Babylon to then obviously be used uh, for something else. This particular uh, sea of cast bronze that sat on 12 oxen, three of the oxen looked in one direction toward the north, three looked toward the west, three looked toward the south, and three looking toward the east. And the sea was set upon them, and all their back parts pointed inward, and it was a hand breadth. Uh, thick, so, so four to six inches thick, and its rim was shaped like the rim of a cup, like a lily blossom, and it contained 2,000 baths. It could contain 11,500 gallons of water. So that was a lot of water. Now, the purpose of the bronze, uh, this kind of bronze sea here, uh, it was it supplied water for the priests. The priests were to wash their hands and they were to wash their feet. Uh, before entering into the temple, uh, they were to do it uh, before handling any sacrifices. And then, of course, sacrifices were kind of a bloody activity. They were to wash their hands and feet uh, afterward. And kind of rabbinic uh, tradition uh, indicates that this particular sea had taps or faucets. I mean, it was seven and a half feet high. How in the world are you going to get into it? But there was some kind of a way for the water then to be released down uh, out of it. And so this beautiful uh, sea of cast bronze that he cast. He also made ten carts of bronze. And four cubits was the length of each cart, and four cubits its width, and three cubits its height. And so five and a half, uh, four and a half feet high, and uh, six feet square. And this was the design of the carts. They had panels, and the panels were between the frames. On the panels, uh, between the frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim. This was the artwork that was cast in. And on the frames was a pedestal on top. And below the lions and the oxen were wreaths of plated work. Every cart had four bronze wheels and axles of bronze. And its four feet had support. Under the laver were supports of cast bronze beside each wreath. Its opening inside the crown at the top was one cubit in diameter. And the opening was round. Shaped like a pedestal, one and a half cubits in outside diameter, and also in the opening were uh, on the openings were engravings, but the panels were square, not round. Under the panels were four wheels, and the axles of the wheels were joined to the cart, and the height of the wheel was one and a half cubits. So he builds ten of these things. That was what was ordered on it, and apparently what it allowed. These were mobile. I, I would take. I don't know how many men to move something like this, but they could be moved. They had wheels. That was the intention. So that when um, sacrifices were being offered at the temple and it was too much for the, uh, the brazen altar to kind of handle all of the sacrifices that were being made, especially on the main Jewish feast, uh, uh, holy days, the feast of uh, Passover, the feast of uh, Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, where you would have somewhere between over a million pilgrims would descend upon uh, Jerusalem in Jesus's day. So Jews would come from all over the world. So they would kind of get overwhelmed with how many sacrifices they were making. These carts could then be moved into place and priests could then begin to cut up sacrifices, wash them so they could then be burnt on the altar uh, as well. And so it created some kind of flexibility in, in uh, uh, kind of, uh, you know, where you've got uh, the, what's there works on regular days. But then on the big days, you've got kind of an overflow situation. And that's uh, that's what it allowed for in uh, in offering sacrifices to the Lord. And um, the workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel. Their axle pins, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all of cast bronze. And there were four supports at the four corners of each cart. Uh, its supports were part of the cart itself. On the top of the cart, at the height of half a cubit, it was perfectly round. 
And on the top of the cart, its flanges and its panels were of the same casting. On the plates of its flanges and on its panels, he engraved cherubim, lions, and uh, palm trees, wherever there was a clear space on them with wreaths all around. And thus he made the ten carts. All of them were of the same mold, the same measure, and one shape, so all of them identical. And then he made ten lavers of bronze. Each laver contained forty baths, and each laver was uh, four cubits. On each of the ten carts was a laver, and he put five uh, carts on the right side of the house and five on the left side of the house. He set the sea on the right side of the house uh, toward the southeast. If you ever think God has forgotten about you or doesn't know what's going on in your life, just read these kind of passages in the Old Testament. It's one of the the reasons I love it. You may sit here saying, would somebody please stop this man? It's impossible. But one of the things it reminds me of is this is a historical book. It is a record of what God wanted to have recorded for us. So you go back to Genesis 1, you go back to Genesis 2, you go back to Genesis 3. You are dealing with an, a historical account from human history. And Huram made lavers and shovels and the bowls. And so Huram uh, finished all the work that he was to do for King Solomon for the house uh, of the Lord. The two pillars and the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on the top of the two pillars, the two networks covering the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on the top of the pillars, 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on the top of the pillars, the ten carts and the ten lavers on the carts, one sea, twelve oxen under the sea, check, 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 all right, Somebody had to give an account for this. The pots, the shovels, and the bowls, all these articles which Huram made for King Solomon for the house of the Lord were of burnished bronze. In the plain of Jordan, the king had them cast in clay molds, uh, clay soil there, wonderful place for casting uh, bronze between uh, Succoth and uh, Zaratan. And Solomon did not weigh all the articles because there were so many, the weight of the bronze was not determined. They just gave up on trying to measure it for how much it it weighed because how do you weigh stuff like that? I mean, even today, you think, where where would we go to put this on to have somebody weigh it? You know, when you got one thing, one article weighs 30 tons. And thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord. So that's talking about the building of the things related to the outside of the temple and the worship. This moves toward things that are on the inside of the temple itself, the furnishings. He had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord, the altar of gold, the table of gold on which was the showbread, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right side, five on the left in front of the inner sanctuary, with the flowers and the lamps and the uh, wick trimmers of gold, the basins, the trimmers, the bowls, the the ladles, and the censers of pure gold, and the hinges of gold, both for the doors of the inner room, that is the Holy of Holies, and for the doors of the main hall of the temple. So all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. He began, he finished. And the Lord and Solomon brought in uh, the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver, the gold, the furnishings, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Now, it's interesting here because you say, wow, where in the world do you get all this money to put something like this together? And um, so remember, David, his father, was not allowed to build the temple. God said, your son's going to build the temple. And David thought to himself, well, if I can't build it, I'll do everything short of it. And he's the one that accumulated all of the wealth and the metals and all of these things as he defeated the nations around him. 
after they had attacked him. And so there was even some of this gold and silver and all from from what David had accumulated that was left over. And it was then stored uh, in that area of the temple. Chapter eight. Now, Solomon assembled the elders. Here we have the dedication now of this temple. You imagine the excitement. They're finally going to have a temple. It's finally going to be built. It's seven years in the building. And uh, so here is this dedication ceremony. And so Solomon assembled all uh, the elders of Israel and all of the heads of the tribes and the chief fathers of the children of Israel to King Solomon in Jerusalem that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. And so all of these uh, people were prominent people were invited and assembled for this a great event, and so doubtless, I mean, thousands and thousands of common people came as well to share in, in this amazing event. And so here they come, and what they're going to do is they're going to take the Ark of the Covenant that represented the presence of God, which was in a tent, a tabernacle, in the city of David, the old city of David, and they were going to transport that Ark now into the Holy of Holies of the new rebuilt temple. So you go to Jerusalem today, and if you're sitting standing on the Mount of Olives and you're looking toward the Temple Mount area, you'd see the Temple Mount right now. The Dome of the Rock Mosque is right here. But the, the, uh, the Jewish temple, Solomon's temple, would have sat right there. And then the guide will tell you, and there's the ancient city of David. And you look down and you say, oh, I thought everything was up here. No, ancient city of David is down uh, here, So Solomon built the temple uh, up on a, the highest point, almost the highest point of Mount Moriah. And uh, so there was the transportation from that lower city to bring that up uh, into the, the uh, newly built uh, temple. And so this is what everything everyone was excited about and everybody came to be a part of. And therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at, uh, at the feast, the month of uh, Ethanim, which is the seventh month. Now, what is very, very interesting about this is that that particular, that seventh month, it, it's the equivalent of our September, October on our calendar year. And Solomon dedicates the temple associated with the timing of the Jewish feast, the fall feast of tabernacles. Now, he finished the, he finished building the temple. Eleven months earlier. And you think, man, you've been seven years getting this whole thing together and Hurams put all this stuff and it's just sitting there like a big package with a bow on it. Why in the world does he wait eleven months to dedicate this temple associated with the Feast of Tabernacles? And the Feast of Tabernacles was a feast uh, where they celebrated how God had been faithful to the Jews and taking care of them during their uh, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of their uh, unbelief and how God had been faithful to keep them and then faithful ultimately to deliver them into the land of promise to keep his promise to them. And so apparently Solomon looked at this and thought to himself, there's a wonderful parallel here. Uh, we've been so long without a permanent place to worship the Lord, kind of been wandering in the wilderness a little bit in this respect. And then now God has been faithful to his word to give us a permanent place. And so he wanted kind of all that imagery associated with the timing of this this dedication. So that was the, the timing of that dedication. And so all of the elders of Israel came and the priests, they took up the ark. Now, Solomon, who did good here, who took up the ark, the priests, the last time the ark got transported by David. Remember, they got it right the second time. But the first time the, the priests had failed to inform David, evidently, that you don't transport the presence of God. Uh, like the Philistines transport stuff on the back of a cart with with oxen. And uh, so it's to be carried by the priests. So Solomon, to his credit, he doesn't make the same mistake his father did. He made he understood and the priests understood that the ark was to be carried. And then they brought up the ark of the Lord 
and the tabernacle of meeting, all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle and the priests and the Levites, as the word of God uh, dictated it would be, they then transported these things up to the newly built temple. And also Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him were, uh, were with him before the ark. They were sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered uh, for the multitude. Now, this must have been an amazing number because we're going to see numbers of uh, the sacrifices that were offered associated with the dedication of, of the temp, uh, temple, and the numbers are huge. So you talk about numbers that can't be counted. This was it. All of it was, all these sacrifices were expressing their consecration to the Lord, their love for the Lord, their appreciation to the Lord. So it wasn't just sacrifices for the sake of sacrifices. They were so thankful that this temple was built and that God had done it. And then the priests brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place. We call it the Holy of Holies under the wings of the cherubim, which were carved in and gold plated in in that Holy of Holies for the cherubim spread their two wings. Uh, over the place of the ark and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. The poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside and they were they are there to this day. That's interesting with the Ark of the Covenant when God gave the specifications for it being built that there were to be four rings placed on either corner. Poles were specific poles with certain dimensions and made of certain wood were to be put through those rings. And the Ark of the Covenant was to be carried by the priests. It was to be carried by his people. And so it represents the presence of God. And even though now they've got this permanent temple that it's being located in, God still wants the uh, imagery and the typology of the, the imagery of the poles to still be communicated to his people. And that is this. In the old, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence. And his presence is taken into the world by priests who carry him into the world. The Bible says in the New Testament that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the word that is used there for the temple of the Holy Spirit, when Paul uses it, the word that he uses is for the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God. Why would he call us the Holy of Holies, the temple of the Holy Spirit? Because God's come inside of us. Greatest miracle you can experience and so we are a pilgrim people. We don't have a permanent place in this world. And the presence of God goes forth in this world only as we carry him out into the world. And uh, so not the way of the Philistines and carts and, you know, all of this kind of thing, the way that they did it. And so all of this imagery and typology was important to the Lord. Nothing, verse 9, was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses had uh, put there at Horeb, uh, on which God had written uh, the Ten Commandments, and when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel, and they came out of the land of Egypt. One of the reasons that the Ark of the Covenant is called uh, the uh, Ark of the Testimony is because it contained the two tablets of the Law of Moses. And so it was a testimony, speaking to God, of God's Word. And so it was named after, one of the names that it had was after the contents in, in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, some of us uh, who are a little bit curious about all of this, we remember reading back uh, in, in the historical record that in the Ark of the Covenant, there was also Aaron's uh, rod that budded. Uh, there was also a bowl of manna in addition to the two tablets of stone that were uh, the, uh, containing the Ten Commandments. We say, well, what in the world happened to those? We have no record. And there's no biblical record of what happened to them. Could have been taken out by the Philistines. All we know is at this point in time, the only thing that was contained in that Ark of the Covenant were the two tablets. 
And it came, it was called the Ark of the Covenant because of the covenant, the, t- the two tablets of stone and uh, the covenant God had made with the children of Israel based upon the law. And it came to pass, verse 10, when the priests came out of the holy place, they've delivered the Ark of the Covenant there, that the, uh, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And so this is known as the Shekinah glory of God. And so they put the Ark of the Covenant in, uh, in the Holy of Holies. The temple's been dedicated to the Lord. And God wanted to give them a physical way for them to realize that he had accepted this temple, that he was going to indwell this temple. This would be the, uh, uh, the place uh, to meet with him. And so he makes his presence and his pleasure known with all that's happening here with the temple itself uh, in this way by bringing his glory here in this tangible way of that cloud. And then Solomon spoke and he said, the Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. And so here is Solomon. He acknowledges the fact that uh, the Lord has uh, been pleased to go ahead and and uh, and indwell this temple that that he had supervised the building of. And then the king turned around and he blessed the whole assembly of, of Israel, thousands of people, no doubt, there while all the assembly of Israel was standing. So the Ark of the Covenant's been delivered. Everybody's looking like this, you know. Then the priests come out because they can't serve there because the Shekinah glory is, oh, man. I mean, if you were there, you talked about that until the day you were gathered to your fathers. You know, people, they have, they've got the ticket stub to the last Beatle concert, a candlestick. This is way better than that. This was really an event to be at. And so here they are and, and everybody's excited. He turns to the assembly and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. I mean, it's, it's only a fancy building till God shows up. So everybody's happy that the Lord is happy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who spoke with his mouth to my father David and with his hand uh, has fulfilled it, saying, Since that day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no ticket. I'm sorry, I got this ticket still in my mind. I have chosen. I don't have one, by the way, but I was at Woodstock. I'm just kidding. I was not, every, everybody else, you know. There was about 80 million people went to Woodstock. Lias, lias. So, since that day, I have uh, brought my people Israel out of Egypt. I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. And so Solomon is encouraging the people in the faithfulness of their God. God promised that a temple would be built, and here it is, a temple has been built. The God that you pray to, the God that you serve, uh, is a faithful God. And Solomon is driving home that point to them. Verse 17, really beautiful. He said, now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, You did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So Solomon's very, very humble at this point in his uh, ministry and in his reign. At this dedication, he points all the glory to the Lord for the fact that that temple, he said, you're looking at a miracle. God, God used me to build this temple. But God built that temple. There's a, that's a miracle that you're seeing before you. God did that. So he's given all glory to the Lord. And then he acknowledges his father. And, and, and this is, I mean, here he is. He's a grand poobah. He's a king of Israel and all of this. And, 
and his wisdom is known all around the world and all. And he and he makes sure everybody knows, hey, the idea to even build this, that wasn't on my heart. This wasn't my idea. We wouldn't have a temple here if it was dependent on it being my idea. It was my father's idea, his love for God that that had the desire for a temple to be built. And, and that's where this was birthed to begin with. And so he's giving credit in, in all directions. And it's, it's healthy and it's beautiful. And so he said in verse 20, So the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke, and I have fulfilled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. God used me to build this. He used me as the instrument. And there I have made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Solomon then begins to pray uh, to the Lord as a part of this whole dedication. He stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands uh, toward the heavens. And so he begins the prayer. He's standing. He lifts his hands up to the Lord in order to begin uh, to pray. Very, very standard position for prayer uh, in Jewish worship in the Old Testament. Very, very common. And one of the reasons, I mean, some, we, we look and say, well, what's up with us? I, th- I think it's great to pray any old way you want to pray, any position you want to pray in. Sometimes we're praying or we're worshiping the Lord and we've got our hands up, you know, and, and then other times we don't have them up. But the Jews raise their hands in, in kind of a public setting like this, as, as Solomon is doing, is because their perception of God is that he was very far off. There was an awe for God and that he was in the heavens. And so there was uh, that, uh, that sense of how they were praying. They were praying uh, toward the heavens where God reigned. Now, when we pray for the most part as Christians, uh, whether in, uh, in a church service or in our own devotional life, so often we kind of uh, fold our hands and we bow our heads and we begin to pray. And you think to yourself, was that some kind of a wimpy position? Shouldn't we all be standing with hands raised up? Why in the world would we do that? And I think one of the reasons that we take that kind of a position is we as Christians do not supremely view God as being way out there on a throne in heaven. Our relationship with God is centered on the person of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And so we go inward in our prayer. Our communion with God is our spirit communing with the Holy Spirit inside of us. Now, I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill here on this. There are times to stand and raise our hands in prayer to the Lord. But for the most part, that's what, what we do and then why we do it. When we're in deep communion with the Lord, so often we go inward, we go quiet because we're a miracle. God Almighty and the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. So he lifts up his hands toward the heavens and he said, Lord God of Israel, There is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant, David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it uh, with your hand as it is this day. Praises the Lord again for his faithfulness. And therefore, Lord God of Israel, Now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to their way, that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant, David, my father. So his first prayer that he wants to ask is that David's lineage of kings would continue uh, as God had promised on the condition that they would be obedient. They're, they're not going to be obedient and that uh, those series of kings are going to be broken and we're waiting for that king that comes from the lineage of David to establish a, a, a throne and a kingdom over the whole world and that it happens at Jesus' second coming when he establishes the millennial or the thousand-year reign of Christ. 
And so Solomon declared, verse 27, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. So there wasn't any recognition on Solomon's part or the people's part that God got kind of compressed into the Holy of Holies. And this is where he was supremely now. Uh, He recognized God fills all of creation and beyond. He is infinite in his presence. But what Solomon is basically saying is that we recognize you're not contained in this kind of small room, but this holy of holies in this temple has become a place where we have a point of contact with God. And so this is a place where sinful man can uh, come into relationship uh, with the Lord. And so that was, he wanted to make sure that the children of Israel, they recognized that, you know, this wasn't something to be worshipped on its own or that God was now limited to this te- temple, which was kind of a pagan view. Uh, he wanted to kind of make that clear as he is uh, praying to the Lord. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God. And listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying to you today. That your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, my name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, the temple here in heaven, your dwelling place when you and when you hear forgive. So now he Uh, gives a series of seven specific uh, petitions that he asked the Lord would listen to and heed when these prayers are lifted up by people to the Lord, uh, looking in the direction uh, of the uh, the temple. He said, when anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then here in heaven... And act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. And so here is the uh, the situation is where some wrongdoing has occurred between two people. They bring that situation uh, to the priests. But one person's got this story. The other's got this story. There's no eyewitnesses, any other eyewitnesses except God. So they would bring him then to the temple. They would ask them to swear then that their version of, of the story was true. And so sometimes you've got people that will lie in, even when they're swearing on a Bible or swearing at the temple. So one of them lies. And basically what Solomon is saying is when that occurs, would you make manifest? Would you reveal who's lying and who's telling the truth? In essence, he's saying, God, we want to be a righteous nation. We want to be uh, a, a nation that judges things properly. Would you be involved in, in, uh, in that judgment and in that righteousness in our nation and uh, be actively involved by you know, exposing who's telling the truth and who's lying. When your people, Israel, are defeated before an enemy because they've sinned against you, and that is the only reason they could be defeated by an enemy, was because of sin in the camp. It was the promise of God. So when your people, Israel, are defeated before an enemy because they've sinned against you, And when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them back to the land which you have given to their fathers. And so hear their prayer when there's repentance uh, due to military defeat because of sin. You notice in verse 31, the first word is when. Uh, Verse 32, then. Verse 33, when. Verse 34, then. So it's a whole series of when, then, when, then, that he's requested he's making of God related to prayer. Verse 35, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you. So a sin uh, caused drought. 
when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your people, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. When there is a famine in the land, pestilence or disease or blight or mildew, locusts, these kind of plagues or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people, Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hand toward this temple, then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, uh, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days in, uh, that they live in the land which you gave to their fathers. Moreover, concerning a foreigner, a Gentile, who is not of your people Israel, not a Jew, but has come from a far country for your namesake. They've come to this temple because they're either a proselyte, they've converted to uh, being a Jew, or they were a God-fearer. They, they recognized the God of the Jews as being the true, one, uh, true and the living God, but a Gentile that was a God-fearer uh, wouldn't be circumcised and they wouldn't put themselves under all aspects of the law of Moses. So he said, when these kind of people come uh, on a pilgrimage... To Jerusalem here to worship the Lord at this temple, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this temple here in heaven, your, in heaven, your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. Lord, answer the prayers of the Gentiles that are directed here, so that the Gentiles know that you love them as much as the Jews. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. So here's the uh, Israeli military in another foreign country. And so they can't, they don't have access to the temple to go there and ask for victory in battle. And so they would turn in the direction of where the temple is, pray. And, and Solomon was saying, uh, even though there's this geographical distance, then hear their prayer and honor their prayer. And when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near, yet when they come to themselves in the land where they've been uh, carried captive and they repent and they make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, we have sinned and done wrong. We have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart, with all their soul in the land of their enemies, who led them away captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgression, which they have transgressed against you and grant them compassion before those who took them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your inheritance, whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people, Israel, to listen to them whenever they call to you, for you have separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance as you spoke by your servant Moses, whom you brought, uh, brought our fathers out of Egypt, oh, uh, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O oh Lord God. And so it was when Solomon had finished praying 
all this prayer, longest prayer in the Bible, and supplication to the Lord that he arose from before the altar of the Lord so, uh, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up toward heaven. So in the course of this prayer, as he's lifting up all of these uh, great requests for God's mercy upon his people, uh, he falls to his knees in the course of that uh, prayer and rep- representing his his worship of the Lord as well. He, in this final when and then, when he asked the Lord to hear the prayers of the children of Israel, when ultimately they go into captive captivity or taken to a foreign land, uh, I mean, this makes you realize that probably the Holy Spirit was involved in this prayer of his because that's exactly what happened. Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel would go into captivity to the Assyrians because of their sin. Uh, years later, the southern kingdom of Judah would go into captivity to the Babylonians because of their sin. And so he said, when they go into captivity, they come to their senses, and they will. And they pray toward where this temple once was, because uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to destroy it and destroy Jerusalem when he ultimately takes it. Then hear their prayer. 400 years after Solomon Praise this prayer. Daniel, in accordance with this prayer, in Babylonian captivity, lifts up a prayer to the Lord asking that the Jews would be restored back to the land because the Babylonian captivity had been 70 years and Jeremiah had prophesied that they would only be captive for 70 years before they would start to be allowed to to return. And so... Beautiful prophecy or beautiful prayer that was given here. And uh, Daniel, to his credit, later on in his life and his ministry, he was a great student of the Old Testament scriptures. And uh, he uh, acted uh, um, in faith upon the promises here and did exactly what Solomon uh, called on, uh, on the Lord to listen to. Repentance when it came. Verse 55. And then he stood and he blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice. And so he's going to bless the people now. It's known as a benediction. And he said, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel. According to all that he promised, there has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. So again, prayer of gratitude for God's faithfulness. God is always faithful. We always pray to a faithful God, always faithful to his promises. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us. He says, God, he says, Lord, we want to have the same great history with you that generations of Jewish people uh, have had. So we don't want to just read about the great God that you are, the great things that you do in the past. We want that to be a part of our history as well. And I think that's a great attitude for any generation. That he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded our fathers And may these words of mine with which I have made supplication before the Lord be near the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day may require, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. Let your heart therefore be loyal uh, to the Lord your God to walk in his statutes And keep his commandments as at this day. And so, wonderful call to, uh, on their part, to be loyal to the Lord, meaning to obey the Lord. I think it's wonderful to think. um, Think about obedience to the Lord in that way. To realize how the Lord interprets our obedience. He interprets it as an expression of loyalty. And uh, that's a beautiful way, I think, of... One beautiful way of looking at obedience, expressing our loyalty to him. And then the king, 
and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. And so here is the temple. God has brought his presence to it. Solomon has prayed. And then now a time to head into this you know, great celebration uh, over the uh, over this great event. And so they began to offer sacrifices before the Lord. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord 22,000 bulls. That's a lot of beef tacos and burritos. And 120,000 sheep. That's your mutton shawarma or falafel over there. I don't put that in falafels, but your shawarma. You look at these numbers, 22,000 bulls sacrificed, 120,000 sheep. It gives us an idea of the number of people that were attending this great event. Remember, they came not only for the dedication of the temple, but also to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacle. So Jews come from all around the world. The Feast of Tabernacles ran seven days. That was its normal length. They're so excited about what's going on here that Solomon's going to declare and to add an extra week to the celebration. So it's going to be two full weeks. And so you've got this gigantic crowd. This is the food that they were eating. I mean, what a great celebration. You've got God there. You've got the worship of the Lord. You've got prayer. You've got fellowship. And you've got barbecue. You've got food. And 14 days of this. I mean, you, you, get, you take 14 days like that and you can almost throw your uh, high blood pressure medicine away. You can really get relaxed, you know, on, on stuff. So it's just a great, great celebration of what was happening there. The peace offerings that they were offering is an interesting offering. Um, if they had offered all of these as burnt offerings, burnt offerings were completely consumed upon the altar because they represented the, they were, the worshiper was expressing their full consecration to God. So the whole offering would be consumed to express that. Peace offerings had a unique characteristic in that a portion of the sacrifice would be burnt on the altar to God, and then the remainder of the sacrifice would be given back to the offer for them to eat. And so God would eat his part, The offer would then eat their part. So it was a way of having this sense that I've just enjoyed a meal with God. Now, the the Jews had a very interesting way at looking at sharing a a meal. They had a very mystical way of of viewing eating. And so if you went to a, a, a Jewish Two Jews would sit down to eat in their families. They'd have the pita bread. They'd have the oil. They would have the different sauces. And they'd take the bread, twist it off, put it in the sauces and eat it. And then, uh, you know, she would take and do the same and so around and everything. And at the end of, of the night, they all felt that they had kind of a mystical union because they'd all eaten from the same loaf of bread. So they were united by this meal. And so for them, what's happening here is they are having dinner with God. It's unbelievable to them. One of the, one of the re, that's one of the reasons that a Jew would not eat with a Gentile. is because they didn't want to have a mystical union or any kind of a union with a Gentile. So they just simply wouldn't eat with them. And there's no, re, I mean, no reason for them not to do that because here's an amazing scene of God Almighty being willing to eat with sinners like us and sinners like them. So it was just this great celebration. And they're thinking it wasn't just, wow, free barbecue. It was God is eating his part of this sacrifice. We're getting a part. We're sitting down to a 14 day meal with our God. So pretty exciting stuff. Let's see if we get Pastor Franz to go to work on Something like that, maybe this summer here. And Kathy. And so the king and all, verse uh, 63, and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. And on the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord 
for there he offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings because the bronze altar that, uh, that was before the Lord was too small uh, to receive all the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings being offered to the Lord. The uh, bronze altar was uh, 40 feet by 40 feet. But when you're talking about 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep over 14 days, even God's part would, would overwhelm uh, that particular altar. So he extended out into what normally would be the courtyard, and that was also used uh, for the sacrifices. And at that time, Solomon held a feast, and all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt, people came from the north and from the south to be a part of this. Before the Lord our God, seven days and seven more days, 14 days. And on the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for Israel, his People. And so they just left again saying, this is too much. We're going to brag about the fact that we were eyewitnesses of this for the rest of our life. And all of it is a shadow of what you will know tomorrow morning when you open your Bible up in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And enjoy all of the blessings that are yours in Christ Jesus. They are celebrating a shadow. The substance of which is our portion all day, every day in Christ. We are so rich. I hope we never lose our excitement in terms of the worship of the Lord. Sometimes when we're worshiping the Lord in song, you know, you can get halfway through a song and go, oh, that's right, I'm worshiping the Lord here, you know, and come back in. No, none of you do that. You just look at me like that, like you've never done that. But that whole thing where these great things that we get to sing to the Lord and sing to Christ and then the excitement that's in our voices and with all of our heart being directed to the Lord. And it's all just a, a picture of the fact or an expression of the fact that we haven't lost our awe over how rich we are in Christ and how simple and easy and clean and instant our access is to the very throne of God because of His blood and then to go even further to realize we have been made the holy of holies because of the sacrifice of Christ that the Holy Spirit indwells our lives. Amazing miracle. We are so rich in Christ Jesus. Let's stand together and we'll pray in close.